Hello again, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Cotton Grower Magazine's Cotton Companion Podcast. I'm Jim Stedman, editor of Cotton Grower, and we're glad you're taking time to join us. And by we and us, I mean me and my own cotton companion, Beck Barnes. Beck, how are you doing today? Hey, hey, Jim. Good, good. Still morning here. Almost said afternoon. Good morning to you. Yeah, I'm doing good. I'm not as good as um, I'm not doing as well as you, UT Vols, uh, this late October. But I, I'm doing okay. Well, you know, it's uh, look, it's it's a surprise for everybody. But you know, we never say never. You know, on on these seasons, as you know, in the in the SEC, that uh, we've got a couple tough games coming up here over the next two weeks, and. We'll see if we can pass those tests and and keep going. But yeah, it's been uh, it's been a fun ride. I, I I told people last week after we beat Alabama, I made sure to wear orange or with something with a uh, with a big with a big T on it every day last week. So uh, I kind of wore out the wardrobe a little bit. Yeah, a lot, lot of lot of orange on the streets here in Memphis. I <laughs> I tell people I I am fortunate to work with the one humble. Tennessee volunteer fan in the, in the state of Tennessee right now. I, I, I think that, co- that comes with experience. I've, you know, I've had my heart broken so many times, you know, over, <laughs> over the years, I think going, going way, 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 way back to, I think an orange bowl, uh, yeah. you know, where a missed field goal cost us a chance to beat Oklahoma. And uh, you know, that was, that was deflating for a, you know, a, a, a young Jim Stedman. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's a life lesson. That's right. It's a good life lesson. But as we all know, you know, college football, regardless of who you pull from, pull for, um, it's always going to tear your heart out at some point. Yeah. So, uh, you know, you just quite learned frequently, quite, quite frequently. frequently. Yeah. You know, it's just, it's just good life lessons at that <laughs> point. But, but anyway, regardless of that, um, as this episode posts, we are rapidly approaching Halloween. And I was thinking that perhaps trick or treat might be an appropriate way to kind of describe this year's cotton season. There were certainly plenty of tricks, uh, ranging from moderate to severe drought to uh, to cold, wet planting conditions, and uh, supply chain issues for obviously needed equipment, parts, fertilizer, farm chemicals, that sort of thing, and not to mention some neck breaking turns with cotton prices. But as we wrap up the season. Uh, there appear to be a few treats in store as the crop comes out of the field, uh, certainly based on some initial reports coming out of the Southeast and the Mid-South. So we're going to explore some of these tricks and treats from the year, uh, from the year to date with our good friend, Dr. John Robinson, who's a professor and extension cotton marketing specialist with Texas A&M in College Station. Yeah, yeah, that's right, Jim. Can't wait to hear from uh, Dr. John Robinson. He's, uh, he's always sharp and, and brings unique perspective to us. So uh, but before we move ahead, uh, we wanted to share this short message from this episode's sponsor. As you guys know, it's it's harvest season. You guys got harvest equipment out in the field. And um, we want to take every precaution to keep everybody safe, keep your crop safe out there. And so with that in mind, we want to hear from our good friends at First Fire Safety. First Fire Safety is a fire protection company based out of Austin, Texas. We have developed a foam fire suppression system specifically designed to protect the John Deere Round Bale Cotton Harvester. We install this system and train operators all over the world. Be fire ready with a first fire safety fire suppression system. Call today for more information and pricing. 512-777-1555. 
Beck, this is normally where we might spend a, a few minutes talking about the news of the day in cotton, but uh, with harvest season in full swing, uh, that's really where the action and, and all the news is right now. So there's there's not a whole lot of extra things to talk about. But you know, as I frequently do from time to time, uh, I found a cotton-related story over the past week that just fascinated me. And I, I feel compelled, and I'm going to say almost required to, uh, oh to share it with you <laughs> and see what you think about it. Okay. I'm, okay. I'm bracing myself. Yeah. Yeah. Brace yourself really good. Now <laughs> you've been in presentations before with, uh, with our, with our good buddy, Bill Robertson over in Arkansas and his demonstration on how cotton degrades in the soil, uh, using a pair of, of cotton underwear versus a pair of, uh, you know, underwear with, from, you know, man-made fibers and burying them for, you know, for a certain amount of time and then pulling them up and show just how, you know, how far the cotton has degraded. How, I'm nodding. I'm nodding. Yes. How environmentally you... beneficial it is. Yeah. Now, there are always exceptions to, uh, to these demonstration results. And last week on multiple news sources, there's a story about a pair of Levi's jeans from the 1880s that recently oh, wow. sold in an auction in New Mexico for more than $87,000. Now the, oh, jeans, the jeans were found last year in an abandoned mine in Cerro Gordo, California, by a gentleman named Brett Underwood, who's a historian who is, dedicates his work to exploring abandoned ghost towns. And the jeans were found after what he called hundreds of feet and rope and multiple days of searching for underground treasures. I don't think jeans is exactly what he was looking for at that point. But nevertheless, the jeans, which did need a little restoration work, included that famous Levi Strauss label and buttons. Now, a little bit more background. This mine was active in the 1870s and apparently has some deep connections back to Levi's since the first pair of jeans was created as a workwear solution for miners. These reinforced pants pockets, of course, held tools, and the durable denim material helped them withstand some pretty harsh working conditions. The jeans were sold, like I said, for $87,400, which is one of the highest prices ever paid for a pair of denims, uh, to, to uh, a gentle, two gentlemen, Kyle Hautner and Zip Stevenson, who has a vintage denim business and repair shop. Now, the jeans, obviously, not only are they extremely rare, but they were in fantastic worn condition and size. Stevenson, who's this, you know, denim expert, said the jeans were surprisingly durable and could still be worn. Wow. She says there's a couple soft spots on them. It could use a little bit of reinforcement, but otherwise they're super duper solid jeans. So uh, considering the average price or, or so I'm told for vintage jeans is about $100 a pair, it's a pretty good return on the investment for the folks who are selling those jeans, don't you think? Absolutely. Yeah. We got to get it, get to uh, the folks over at Cotton Inc. You know, always thinking about trying to find ways to add value here. Here we have it on a platter. If we just, we've got to age all of our jeans by 120 years. Yeah. Just bury them, yeah. you know, just stick them in a mine somewhere for, you know, you know lock them away for about 120 years. I've probably got some in my closet from about 98 or so. I wonder how much, <laughs> I wonder how much I could get for those. They're probably no, I think I think Cotton Inc. would probably want it as far as the uh, you know the blue jeans go green program. They'd rather you go ahead and recycle all those. Well, I'm not going to recycle if I can get eighty seven thousand dollars for them. I mean, <laughs> sorry, sorry, blue jeans go green. Uh, excellent program, but uh, excellent program, but you know the, the, 
the the ceiling has just been set. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it sure has. No, that's great. Well, that's a, that's a cool story there. I'd be interested to hear from what Dr. Bill Robertson uh, take mm-hmm. on why I guess if you bury a pair, they're going to bury a pair of cotton underwear, it's going to degrade, but I'm assuming these were kind of left out in the open. I don't know. I would need to learn more about the condition in which these were. I'm sure they were not completely buried, yeah. but still. And it also raises a question. What was going on when the guy had to had to abandon them? Uh, an excellent question. It's an excellent question. And we're just going to leave that for our audience to ponder. <laughs> yeah, yeah, at this I point. Shudder. <laughs> I'm shuddering to think. Yeah. <laughs> well, with that out of the way, it's time to welcome John Robinson, professor and extension cotton marketing specialist with Texas A&M back into our virtual studio. John, welcome back to the Cotton Companion. How are you doing? Thank you. I'm other than football, I'm doing doing well and having an enjoyable fall season. <laughs> That's great. Well, speaking of fall seasons, uh, let's let's say first things first, I know we don't have all the harvest totals in yet. The last crop progress report uh, showed Texas at 40% harvested, about 7 percentage points ahead of their 5-year average. But I know we've also seen a lot of widespread abandonment across the state. So after the year that that Texas has struggled through, what are you what are you hearing from these harvestable areas at this point? Uh, I'm I'm hearing mixed things, um, some reminiscent of of a year or two ago when growers, you know, what they'll say is, well, we thought we had more there, but when we got into the field, we're we're just not seeing the bowl or not, not seeing the bales. Uh, I've, I've heard some of that, um, but it's kind of a, it's kind of a mixed bag from South to North. You know, there's some spots that uh, came out, came out okay. Or certainly some spots came out better than others. Um, but there's probably most of the uncertainty is concentrated in the part of the state that hasn't, hasn't been harvested yet. So that, that, that sort of remains to be seen, uh, whether there's a whole lot of that or whether USDA has kind of pegged it with the, with the educated guess that they've made based on their field sampling, their bowl counting and, and whatnot. I'm inclined to think that, um, you know, this, this October report that we had from USDA didn't didn't have much of an adjustment on the production side. And I think going forward, that's, that's, there's going to be fewer and fewer surprises, not to say that they're not going to tinker with the production number because they will. But I think in terms of market influence, there's just going to be less and less to give us the kind of rally that I'll remind you that we had after the August report came out. And they went out on, in my opinion, went out on a limb and cut 3 million bales off of the U.S. production number as a monthly adjustment. I was astounded by that. And the market, you know, we had a big rally, um, took us back up over a dollar, um, which has since faded. You know, for the second time, we've had a major slump, um, which is probably continuing right now. Well, you know, as, as we record this, we're sitting here a few days before Halloween. So I'm going to ask you, if you had to define tricks and treats to this 2022 cotton season, what would they be? Uh, So tricks being bad things, um, I can see if we if we continue to have evidence of weak demand that confirms, I think, the the 
the guesses that are out there about weak demand. Weak demand coming from, you know, the Federal Reserve is raising interest rates, putting the brakes on the economy and slowing economic growth generally is bad for cotton demand because in tough economic times, people cut back on discretionary things like wardrobes. So, so the trick would be just if we get more of that bad macro data, bad adjustments by USDA, bad weekly export numbers, the, we've had tepid that's a nice word. Tepid weekly export numbers. If that continues, then that's a trick. That'll 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 be bad. Um, in terms of a treat, uh, I suppose we could, despite what I just said, there's always room for surprises. So if USDA surprises us again with another great big, larger than expected production cut, that that might inject a little bullish sentiment into the market. But again, being late in the fall, I don't think it would last that long. So kind of a modest treat might be possible. Well, well as, as you mentioned, you know, prices have kind of settled back down to that mid 80 cent range or, you know, fluctuating up and seven. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You know, fluctuating up or down, you know, as we've seen that. And like you said, the, the supply demand report came off as kind of neutral with no overwhelming reasons for prices to, uh, to climb again. Um, What's what's going on and, and why at this point? Well, to be honest, I wouldn't call it neutral. The U.S. numbers were, were neutral. All they did were really was cut 100,000 bales off of U.S. exports. But that kind of ties into the really bearish part of that report was the world numbers. They, they cut 3 million bales off world supply, which kind of like the August U.S. production number, 3 million bales is a big adjustment as a monthly adjustment and it's, and it's bearish, you know, on the face of it, it's just, it's just a reflection of, I guess, of USDA's belief that uh, cotton consumption is going to slow and overall economic activity is slowing. So, so I think that was the, that was the bearish aspect. And I think the market has been reacting to that since. Well, John, uh, you know, if I can jump in here, looking ahead, looking ahead to 2023, it seems like we're headed uh, at this point in the year, starting to get into decision season, decision season, easy for me to say, for growers. Um, what should they be looking at right now? What indicators are out there to kind of help point them in a profitable direction? I mean, besides rain, we know out there in your part of the world, that's the biggest thing in the room. The biggest thing out there is, you know, we need some rains. Um, yeah. But aside from that, I mean, what do they need to be considering? What what other options might they have? That's a good good question. So uh, so you, so people are need to be and are looking at relative prices as they always do. So right now, new crop cotton futures are you know seventy five cents or something. Um, they're less than that. They're about seventy four, seventy three this morning. Uh, and relative to corn, we're way way poorer, relatively weaker than usual relative to corn prices, which in our world translates to sorghum prices. And also wheat prices are really strong. So cotton is is really the worst of the bunch. So from a relative price standpoint, you know, I could expect cut a cut in acres. Having said that, you brought up rain. So so when we're in a when Texas is in a drought situation, there's this, um, there's an influence of the drought that generally increases plantings of cotton out here. And it's because, because Texas, it's, it pencils out better 
if, if you're growing a crop and harvesting a crop in a dry situation, cotton is better. If you're going to have a wipeout because of drought, cotton pencils out better as an insurance claim too. So historically, we tend to have more cotton acres planted. You know, they plant it, they pay a lot for insurance, and then they see what happens. If it stays dry, the way it's forecasted to uh, going into the first quarter of next year, um, just in Texas, we could have not a cut in cotton acres. We might even, I don't, I'm not going to say we're going to have an increase, but we, I wouldn't expect a very large cut in cotton acreage because of the drought response. Yeah. Then on the other hand, it's raining this week. There's a nice cold front passing over. It's going to rain again on Friday and Saturday. You know, if we get some rains, there's a lot of wheat planted, as there always is. But having moisture over the winter might induce, and having $8 wheat prices may induce people to hang on to that grain. And, you know, a lot of times they just graze it out or terminate it and plant cotton by mid-March. But this is the kind of year somewhat different where wheat is actually attractive enough economically that the decision may be, well, I'm not going to plant cotton and ensure that. If we get enough moisture, I'm going to plant wheat. I'm going to keep my wheat. I might even keep it for grain. That's, un I'm not going to say that's unusual. Well, it is unusual. Uh, but this is the kind of year because of high prices, if we get enough moisture, that that may happen. And also, the more it rains, the more feasible it is to plant corn. So there's a there's a whole bunch of kind of trade-offs in there that make it complicated to answer the simple question, will Texas be more or less cotton? Gosh, I, I can't even imagine. I, I know that they will take a rain right now, any time between now and planting season, they'll take you know whatever rain they can get. But I just can't imagine how frustrating that must be to have the season that those guys out there had this year and then you you're doing harvest or you wrap up harvest and here comes a rain cloud. I mean, you got to be a little sour about that. Um, John, you mentioned uh, the role that insurance plays in, in these guys thinking and how, you know, rain might impact that. I mean, uh, what role did crop insurance play for growers this past year? And this may be a kind of a dumb question, but I, you know, I wonder, is it pretty much a hundred percent of the guys out there uh, going to have, the crop insured. I mean, I, I would hope so, especially in light of a year like this. It's 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 basic. It's fundamental. A crop insurance is necessary to backstop and enable farm finance. You're not going to get an operating loan unless unless you've got uh, the value of that potential crop, the lint and the seed uh, covered with with uh, the available insurance products. So it you know, and it's obvious in a year like this that 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 you need it, but. We never, you know, it's Texas. It's always potentially going to be hot and dry. Doesn't matter if we're in a drought or if it's just normal hot and dry. So, so crop insurance is is fundamental, and and everybody, every, everybody is going to insure insure their crop, or they're not going to plant it. It's always vital. Uh, you know, this year it's going to be important going in. You know, we'll have carryover debt. If people have losses. Crop insurance doesn't make you entirely, it doesn't make you money and it might not even make you all the way whole. It's just going to make you somewhat whole and allow you to refinance. And, you know, they'll have carryover debt going into next spring. So it'll, it'll continue to be important. John, quick question. If uh, growers are looking at the, looking at everything right now as harvest finishes and they start looking toward next year, what would you tell them to help with their planning right now? Any, any sage advice? You know, I'd, I'd say it's first. I'd say it's never too early to be to be planning to looking looking at next year's prices, even looking at next year's hedging opportunity. You know, at options this early, ordinarily we don't really think about those kinds of strategies, and they're too expensive. 
mm-hmm. but I'd still be looking at them. I'd be shopping for opportunities. You know, last year's a pretty good example of with all the gyrations in price, you know, you had some opportunities to hedge at really, really high levels and nobody thought we'd fall from a dollar twenty to, you know, eighty, and then bounce back to a dollar fifteen. I mean, I wouldn't have expected that. But in those price movements, were some very strong viable hedging opportunities. Uh, so I would just say, wherever the market goes, you know, consider the volatility. That'd be that'd be one thing. Uh, obviously, they're all looking at at the prices for next year's crop from next year's futures markets. And they need to be looking at those relative relative prices. Well, I guess in the, uh, you know, the big question, I think you kind of alluded to it a little bit earlier is cotton acres up or down next year for Texas. If I had to just make a guess, I'd say we're probably going to be maybe, you know, we typically, we normally will swing five, seven, maybe 10% one way or the other. And I would think we're going to be down maybe, five to like that five to seven percent and and it'll go to wheat that is kept or it'll go to some corn plantings at these high corn prices and that's only in the places where they can actually do that sort of thing which would be the upper panhandle where they have enough irrigation water and they have strong wheat production up there anyway so i I would expect to lose some cotton acres up there well john with that i think we'll uh we'll call it a day on this, this discussion. Uh, thanks as always for taking time to join us. And uh, we're hoping that the rest of the Texas harvest goes as smoothly as possible. So, uh, and, and, and I look forward to seeing you at Beltwide. In New Orleans. I'm, I'm, I will be there. Uh, I, I think the only important thing I do there is play the country music at the reception, but I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Well, that's plenty <laughs> important, John. Don't, don't downplay that. That's right. Somebody, somebody's got to take that role on, and you know, with with you, it's, I'm sure it's in capable hands at that point. Well, we have a lot of fun. All right. Well, we look forward to it. Thanks, John. We'll see you there. Thank yes, you, sir. Thank you. Mm-hmm. All right, and that's going to be it for this episode of the Cotton Companion Podcast. Uh, we want to give a special thanks to our friend Dr. John Robinson for joining us, and uh, thanks too to First Fire Safety for their support of this podcast. And as always. We want to thank you, dear listener, for joining us. Uh, We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. If you did and you like what you hear on on the Cotton Companion, please be sure to spread the word. Tell your farmer friends about the podcast. Here's where and how they can find us. You can find the Cotton Companion in three easy ways. First, go to cottongrower.com forward slash companion or simply click the podcast tab at the top of the homepage. Second, Subscribe to our channel on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts these days. And three, sign up for our weekly e-newsletter, The Cotton Grower E-News, that's delivered to your email inbox every Tuesday morning. You can do that by going to cottongrower.com forward slash subscribe. Also, be sure to follow Cotton Grower on social media. We are at Cotton Grower Mag on Twitter. And on Facebook, you'll find us by searching for Cotton Grower Magazine. Cotton Companion Podcast is produced twice monthly by Tyler Hatch and Kim Henderson, our talented colleagues at the World Headquarters for Meister Media Worldwide in beautiful Willoughby, Ohio. I'm Jim Stedman. He's Beck Barnes. And we'll be back with you in two weeks for the next episode of the Cotton Companion. Until then, stay safe and pick clean. Yeah, he works and he works and he works and he works all day. God made fun.